Welcome to Penumbra Cast, The Other Scene. I'm Fernanda Negrete. And my guest today is Willie Apollon, a philosopher and psychoanalyst. Willie Apollon was born in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and he lives and works in Quebec City, where he has developed with a few colleagues analysis for psychotic individuals and a related center for treatment that gives psychoanalysis the central role and aims at enabling individuals to participate in social life as free citizens. The long-term beneficial effects of this approach have been seen over the past 39 years in Quebec. His interest in psychoanalysis emerged from working with Michel de Certeau, who introduced him to Jacques Lacan's work. Willie Apollon, in turn, brought Lacanian thought to Quebec when he arrived at the beginning of the 1970s. He defended his doctoral thesis at the Sorbonne in Paris under the supervision of Gilles Deleuze, a dissertation subsequently published as Le Voodoo, an espace pour les voix, Voodoo, a space for the voices, by Galilée in 1976. In 1977, along with humanities colleagues and graduate students from Université Laval, he founded the nonprofit organization GIFRIC, the Freudian Interdisciplinary Group for Research and Clinical Intervention. His contribution to this group's ethics is manifest in the value of, as Lucie Quentin puts it, not giving up on one's desire while maintaining its articulation to the social link where the citizen takes responsibility for his or her subjective act. Apollon has also noticeably engaged in rethinking analytic theory and even reorienting some of its key concepts when real clinical experience calls for it, an engagement to which the many texts he has authored attest. Among them, his works on the clinic of psychosis, on femininity and masculinity, and on mondialisation stand out, as does his emphasis on aesthetic expression. Some of his essays in English have appeared with those of his colleagues Daniel Bergeron and Lucie Quentin in the SUNY Press volume After Lacan, edited by Robert Hughes and Karen Rohr Malone in the journals Differences, Contouren, and also Umbra, the former journal of Buffalo's Center for the Study of Psychoanalysis and Culture. Special thanks to Denis Morin for facilitating and transcribing the meeting with Willie Apollon, to Stephen Miller for reviewing my translation, to Omar Brown for his assistance with editing this episode and its translated version. Merci beaucoup de d'avoir accepté cette invitation. Je suis vraiment ravi. C'est mon plaisir. Oui, um, et je vais passer à l'anglais pour, pour parler un peu de vous. <laughs> so, for this very special episode in which psychoanalyst, philosopher, and teacher Willie Apollon has graciously joined me, I would like to start by alerting listeners to the fact that the propositions of psychoanalytic practice and about the key concept of the unconscious that we will discuss today may sound unfamiliar with regard to both everyday speech 
and to more frequent approaches to psychoanalysis, including Lacanian ones. This may also be the case with the other guests that I have received so far here in Penumbro cast, the other scene, and that is because each one of them has been closely involved and moved, I would say, by the teachings of Gifric and the EFQ, the Freudian School of Quebec, like myself. As the podcast hostess, I have curated this series of episodes to offer this particular understanding of the ethics of psychoanalysis and its effects, since in it, I find a number of positions that seem crucially important to, pre to present and future human life. Beyond the interest of preserving cultural ideals and values that can never extend to everyone, or to every part of each one of us. While Willie Apollon's work is certainly informed by Jacques Lacan's, it also advances beyond it, since he develops a new metapsychology. To a significant extent, this is possible by virtue of the practice with psychotic individuals that he, with other analysts from Gifric, Daniel Bergeron and Lucie Quentin, developed in Quebec City starting in 1982 at the Center for the Treatment of Psychotic Young Adults, known as the 388 or 388, uh, in which many other key people participate as well. Also, as we will discuss in our conversation, each cultural context has different implications and effects. Just as Freud's context was not Lacan's, so is Lacan's context, not Apollon's. This work engages directly with the reality of mondialisation, a term he proposes to invoke not so much the, the economic transformations of the globalized world under capitalism as the irreversible clash of civilizations and their consequences on many levels. Specifically, this event raises a question on the future of humanity that Apollon sees as unavoidable to the practice and theory of psychoanalysis. So mondialisation and the analytic clinic for psychosis constitute a frame for Apollon to develop a new metapsychology. It is therefore within these specific and highly relevant axes of the analytic clinic of psychosis and mondialisation that we will explore the concept of the unconscious in the new metapsychology Willie Apollon has been developing. In this episode, we have determined that a definition of psychoanalysis, which I invite from each of my guests, will make more sense at the end of the episode. We have decided to have this conversation in French in, in order to allow a more spontaneous flow of Willie Apollon's ideas and for precision in his use of terms. Whether you listen in French or English, perk up your ears and brace yourselves. I'd like to start by asking you a question on the unconscious. As I stated, I proposed addressing the term of the unconscious with you because, as you told me in our previous conversations with the transference, the unconscious is probably the most essential in psychoanalysis as an experience, and it is also something essential in its theoretical dimension. So before going into the way in which you formalize this concept with regard to analysis today, we could maybe highlight that if in a metapsychological essay such as Freud's The Unconscious, 
which he published in 1915, he says he is going to assume something unconscious that is nonetheless. His hypothesis then is grounded upon an experience uh, of this order. If he supposes that something is at work, it does not come only from from theory. As an abstract concept, the unconscious is not particularly meaningful, whereas in the context of a psychoanalytic cure as an effect of what is called the transference, the unconscious truly relates to another space, another scene. It would be interesting if you could shed light on the unconscious under transference to properly situate its functioning. The unconscious under transference is precisely the formula that one should use. To begin, I would say we should be careful to distinguish the unconscious as a concept and the unconscious as an experience. They are not at all the same thing. In metapsychology, we try to construct concepts that are as close as possible to experience. But psychoanalysis is primarily an ethical experience. And so the unconscious, if we if we want to talk about the unconscious at stake in psychoanalysis, we need to speak about the unconscious as an experience. And it's a peculiar experience because it's an experience that is provoked. It's an experience that is provoked, that the analyst provokes in the analyzand. The analyzand comes to analysis with a demand. He speaks to the analyst about whatever is disrupting his life. The silence of the analyst the non-intervention of the analyst is fundamentally linked to that which the analyst himself lived in his own analysis. For that which the analyst lived in his own analysis undermined, I'd say, all the obstacles, but also the norms and values that a culture uses to define the space of collective life. Accordingly, at a certain moment, the analyzand encounters in the analyst something that is like a void. The other to whom the analyzand speaks, in fact, does not exist. It's as if the analyzand encountered a void there where he expected a response from the other. This bad encounter causes the analyzand to confront an, a hitherto unexpected dimension of his interiority a space that in the analyzand could not pass through language emerges in a passage to the act that will disorganize the life of the analyzand. All of his relations with others, all of his relations with himself will be subverted, disrupted by what emerges from the deepest part of himself and that he didn't know before, and that emerges in senseless acts, acts that the analyzand performs without being able to imagine why he does them. Here is where transference begins and the analytic experience begins because what emerges there in the life of the analyzand, thanks to this bad encounter with the, in the analyst, this is precisely uh, the unconscious. This is what we're talking about when we talk about the unconscious. Does the analyzand somehow, albeit partially, recognize this bad encounter and the act that responds to it as something different than other bad encounters that he or she might have within the social link in relation to an other who does not respond as expected? 
in the social link, what happens is defined by the culture in which the analyzer is situated. The bad encounters are already defined by the norms, the rules, the values that make the social link possible. What emerges in transference is very precisely what is excluded from the social link, what is excluded from the analyzant's relations with others, a spouse, children, colleagues, or friends. What surges up in the transference is foreign to all such relationships. What makes the social link possible, in a sense, is the exclusion of this upsurge. I thus designate this upsurge as that which is censored by the culture of the social link. It's something that Freud encounters, but he tries to manage it in the transference. Yes, this is a very clear explanation of the transference. It's a concept that I think I think it's one of the most complicated, one of the most misunderstood, and this makes me... There is something excluded from the social link, something that transference transfers precisely into the social link, which is what completely disorients the analyzant's relation to others in the social link. Yes, this is why an analysis, an analytic cure, is not an easy experience or adventure. The question of this distinction between spaces, the space of the social link, the space outside the social link of the censored, the space that opens up for an analysand under transference, made me think about the fact that up to a certain point, even for people who have nothing to do with psychoanalysis, there is a vocabulary borrowed from Freud, the vocabulary of the unconscious, or a word I hear even more often, the subconscious entered into common speech. And we certainly don't mean the same thing as that, but I wanted to think about it a little further to clarify what is absolutely unique about analysis. When someone says they did something unconsciously or in a subconscious way, the implication is that everything could become eventually conscious. Whereas Freud distinguishes at least two levels of repression, for example, primary and secondary. And he tries to point to a deeper unconscious that cannot be explained with reference to the family traditions of a given culture that would have provoked the repression of what the individual would like to do but is not allowed within his or her culture. In Freud's concept of the unconscious, we have underestimated the, the fact that, that when Freud speaks of consciousness, he means something created by language. It's created by the structure of the social link. This collective consciousness that arises within culture creates what I would call a mental space that differs from one culture to another. The question then becomes, is there a lived experience that can pass through language and become conscious and that wasn't conscious before? But there is an experience that cannot pass through language and that only passes through the act. It will not become conscious. Freud grasped this, but it remains underestimated because the unconscious is only considered as a concept. We forget that the unconscious is an experience. There is a portion of what is experienced, of what is lived in the deepest intimacy of ourselves that will never pass through language and thus can never become conscious. These are the consequences of the act through which this experience passes. These, con these consequences, however, do not give us access to the cause. It is necessary to grasp a space that is not mental space, 
and thus managed by culture, a space where what, or what is lived won't pass through language. The mental will not have access to this, but it will have consequences. This seems very logical. And it makes me wonder about the analyst's relation to this space in himself that cannot become conscious. What is at stake when one is an analyst with regard to this stricter unconscious, more strictly unconscious or outside of language in himself? If we consider the human being in the process of evolution, this intimately lived experience that is the human exists well before language. It exists well before culture that language will make possible. It exists well before the civilization whereby collectives will try to accredit norms and rules and cultural values. These cultures disappear, civilizations die, but this dimension that appears with sapiens does not die, goes on. What does it seek? What does it want? Spinoza already called that desire, a term that Lacan reprises in lieu of what Freud called wunsch, a wish. There is thus in us this dimension that I insist on calling the human and that transcends language, that transcends culture, and that transcends civilization, and that is the heart of unconscious desire. To be an analyst, it is necessary to travel this far. When the analyzant encounters this experience in the analyst, it is like a wall. And the part of the human that exists also in the analyzant is given a, given a chance. The passage of, to the act of the transference then, where the analyzant discovers the unconscious, at first he has no idea that where it will take him, but it will take him beyond all limits of culture, beyond all the limits of civilization. During, in the 1930s and 40s, psychoanalysis shrank away from this experience. Lacan could pick up the torch because Romanticism had allowed, in a certain sense, for the intervention of the pervert. Between 1915 and 1925, it was Dada and Surrealism which championed the censure and refused the censorship of culture, which allowed Lacan then to carry the torch. But Lacan remained within Western civilization. Christian or Protestant civilization, Protestant civilization, thus within the parameters of what civilization deems inappropriate to say, within the field from which civilization excludes a certain number of things, in particular, feminine jouissance, despite the intervention of the pervert via surrealism. So this raises a question about the difference between Lacan's manner, for example, and yours of conceiving of the unconscious with regard to these cultural contexts that have effects on what's possible to introduce. What happens with the internationalization of capital and financial globalization supports Lacan's approach. But this perspective finds its limit in mondialisation, in that which in in the 2000s I began to designate as mondialisation which is to say the confrontation of cultures and civilizations, which will cause all limits imposed by civilizations and cultures to be called into question. Thus, the very mechanisms of censorship and culture, the very modalities of accrediting norms, rules, and values through, through civiliza- civilizations 
all this is called into question in in different spaces where three or four civilizations which do not have the same values meet within the same collective crossing the street you meet people who belong to the same collective but don't follow the same rules and don't have the same values inside a collective therefore inside life together inside what is supposed to be the social link the limits of the mental become blurred what was inappropriate to say in one civilization is not in another what was censored in one culture is not in another and the individuals from these cultures and these different civilizations decide to couple up obviously this mainly happens in the west but more and more it reaches the middle east africa asia china india they do their best to protect themselves but time is short time is running out so the very forms of what cannot pass through language are going to change the quality the dimension the violence of the passage to the act will change to the point that the aesthetic what we don't want to lose because this is what the aesthetic actually refers to to what we don't want to lose because it upholds the best of the human this is what's called the beautiful it shocks us we can't say much about it but we don't want to lose it for anything in the world it does not pass through language the the acts that it provokes in us are senseless but we cherish them above all else it rises to the level of the sublime to the point that we prefer that to our own existence but at this point we step outside the limits of a civilization you can see that this framework which is experienced as unconscious cannot be enclosed within the practices that were still possible Freud that were still possible for Lacan we need to invent something else if the human does not create it disappears but creating is a matter of exceeding all limits for better or for worse either aesthetics or violence this is what we entered into in the in the 2000s but we were prepared for it with psychosis yes it's it's interesting to consider that such creation also pertains to psychoanalysis that psychoanalysis must also be creative it's not like an unchanging discipline that only observes and describes the human i mean yes the human but not human beings from a position that stands outside this responsibility of creating it seems important to me to recall this and it seems to be a part of the conflicts of psychoanalysis as an institution or that sometimes there is like a resistance to this need to continue creating and sometimes under this it's like a quarrel of the ancients and the moderns so to speak Sometimes the moderns want to no longer do analysis or don't want anything to do with psychoanalysis and it seems too easy and for me unconvincing as a solution to try to see where we are now or the future or what's coming in particular I was very interested by what you say on the sort of limit with regard to feminine jouissance which you mentioned at the time of Lacan where the avant-garde such as data and surrealism came up with a space to try to open or subvert the culture in a way that made feminine jouissance sense emerge through the pervert as you said but that seems like something that would have a link to what we understand by wait let me start over i want to say that we would like to clarify this term feminine jouissance as well as that of sexuality which is known as very important in psychoanalysis 
but also the object of a misunderstanding. So it would be good to see why today sexuality continues to be important, or in what way it is pertinent for psychoanalysis today in the way you underline, where it is not a matter of some particular cultural walls, where it is a matter of the human beyond culture and civilization. And also, why is it that sexual liberation, or there are many movements that could be mentioned during the 20th century, which go in the direction of a sexuality more, less repressed, so to speak, but have we really achieved that or not? And if, if feminine jouissance is still something rejected, why is that? Or what is that about? And it's not that we reject feminine jouissance. In fact, it is excluded. To reject it, we would have to have access to it. And when I speak of feminine jouissance, it's important to un understand that jouissance can only be feminine. The point is that culture accredited by civilizations necessarily organizes sexuality from childhood onward from the earliest childhood. It's not long before a, a little girl is given a doll as a gift. A young boy, nine to ten years old, asks himself about the object of his mother's demand, which, to all evidence, the mother's partner, the father, or someone else does not manage to satisfy. Very early in, in life, then, jouissance is excluded from what civilization and culture put in place. I call it feminine, but it's not only excluded for the woman, it's excluded for the man as well. I would, I'd like to clarify that it's excluded first in the man, and the mode whereby it's excluded is by substituting for it an organ pleasure, as if the orgasm that we share with a dog or a monkey or a bull could somewhere satisfy what's at stake in the spirit or in the aesthetic. Culture goes so far as to promise this to the woman. Obviously, from the pervert's intervention onward, at the end of Roman Romanticism and in Surrealism, this cultural censorship of jouissance by way of the construction of sexuality will be struggling with the pervert in a war. The pervert contests this censorship and is at war against this censorship without any clarity about what is in fact censored. The confrontation of cultures and civilizations and mondialization multiplies the forms of the construction of sexuality, but it will multiply the strategies of the pervert's fight. But that does, this does not clarify for us what's at stake when we analysts speak of sexuality. Because when we speak of sexuality in psychoanalysis, we speak of an experience. It's not a concept, it's an experience in which, thanks to the other, what cannot be said because it is excluded from the social link can take an aesthetic form. And this experience is, is what we call femininity. In a man, as well as in a, in a woman, it has nothing to do with gender. That's not what's at stake. What's at stake here is not the order of organic difference. It doesn't pertain to the observable that femininity opens an aesthetic space for what cannot be said, and that will necessarily pass through an act. The consequences, the consequences of this act will, will be either violence or the beautiful. This 
feeling or this fear of losing. We don't want to lose Beethoven. We don't want to lose Dali. Never under any circumstances would we want to lose Shakespeare. But in the face of the excesses of violence against the human, we, have, we are afraid of losing what has enlarged the human within us. But when in psychoanalysis we speak of jouissance, we speak of this experience in which, from the fact of the other, something very intimate in us, never experienced before, emerges, expels us from ourselves in a moment that we wouldn't wish to lose for anything in the world, and which we wouldn't give up for anything in the world. This particular moment of discovery in us of a dimension of ourselves that under no circumstances would we want to lose that we did not know before and that we don't know where it will take us beyond all limits this is what we call jouissance but the fact that it's the other that provokes this in us this dimension this is what we call sexuality this has led me to say sometimes to young men try try to make love for a few months a year maybe maybe two without an orgasm, just so that a, wo a woman can discover in herself a dimension of herself to which her culture or her civilization would never have given her access. This would give you a chance to discover the same thing in yourself as a guy. I tend to say this to young people because they're not using the other for pleasure. Pleasure has nothing to do with jouissance. The loss of self in jouissance is something that intrigues those who spend their time playing at pleasure, like children with their toy trains. The pervert has caught sight of the fact that this jouissance has nothing to do with the construction of the sexual and culture. He will thus seek all kinds of means of access to this jouissance without passing through the cultural construction of the sexual. When he asks to be tied up, to be diapered, to be whipped, it's only an attempt to get out of this cultural construction of the sexual, which tries to repress jouissance with pleasure, just as adolescence is repressed by puberty, and just as the feminine is repressed by a woman devoted to the cultural function of maternity. Analysis is a voyage beyond such limits. The psychotic knows much about all of this. Yes, I, I'd like to turn to the psychotic exactly. You have previously mentioned the psychotic in relation to mondialisation. Uh, with this question in particular, it is even more intriguing, more mysterious even, to understand how the psychotic knows something about this. I will give you an example. Two, actually. Sometimes it happens that our psychotic patients, the, the guys, are confronted with a temptation to cut off their own penis. And at that moment, the treatment becomes quite difficult because what these patients are struggling with is the discovery, this knowledge of the dimension of censorship of the feminine that they're that is that there is within the construction of the masculine organ as a model of sexuality. So it happens that a psychotic wants one day to cut off his penis, no longer to participate in this censorship uh, of the feminine. Another example that I'd offer is of two psychotic patients. Obviously, these patients had gone a certain distance in the cure. They made progress, which is why I take them as an example. So these two patients 
that love each other and get married, as they say in culture. And on their wedding night, they went to a hotel room, a magnificent room with two beds, and each one orders dinner, everything they love, everything each one of them loves. Each one in their bed eats what they love, but their dinner was ordered by the other one. It's their wedding night. The psychotic is not imprisoned in this construction of the sexual. That's signs the censorship of the feminine or seals it, a feminine jouissance. He is not imprisoned in the inappropriate to say of civilization either. Moreover, as soon as he starts speaking, saying what he thinks, what he says is considered as inappropriate to say. He is said to be delusional. He is said to hallucinate when he speaks of his experience. A third example is a patient who wrote for months and years in his room some 20 boxes of written texts were found. And what he was writing the whole time was the constitution upon which the world government would rest. You see this concern of the psychotic is the human as such. The psychotic is not concerned with what happens in his civilization. He's not worried about improving what happens in culture. No. What he is concerned about is the fate of the human beyond what a civilization or a culture can envisage. When we followed hundreds of psychotics in the voyage of transference, we can only accompany them to a certain point where what's at stake is the human and not those civilizations which claim to be the best, which, as, which assert that what the human ought to be. Sadly, we are in this type of civilization, which will disappear like the others. It will surely be necessary for the human finally to become the object of our concern. In any event, the pandemic has luckily begun to help us in mondialization, as if mondialization were not enough. At the heart of the unconscious, already with Spinoza at stake, is the unknown to come of the human, which aesthetics and ethics help us to accompany. Yes, I really love these three examples, um, it made me think of many things. The first example made me think a bit about Artaud and his work to be done with the judgment of God, where he speaks of man cutting off his penis at the end. Yeah, he sees that as the only solution to go beyond an imprisonment in culture, in civilization. And the second example is the one you gave, is very beautiful. I don't know. It's beautiful. It's touching. So yes, it seems that psychosis, there's a lot in what you say that would raise questions like, for example, the affirmation that the transference can be provoked in the psychotic. It's something where I imagine individuals who call themselves analysts who, and who might think there's something totally different and, and new there. Maybe it's not possible, according to what others said, Lacan included. Uh, I know we have already talked about transference and in the definition that you proposed, I wonder if this void, or maybe the question is, for the psychotic, is this void that you talked about, the void of the bad encounter, the void found in the analyst when the analysand addresses something to him, is this void always there for a psychotic structure? And so it's not really news as it would be news for the neurotic, or how could we understand this process? The transference for a neurotic is not at all the same thing as transference for a pervert. And transference for the pervert is not at all the same thing as 
transference for the psychotic. These are three different universes. These are three completely different experiences. But for the analyzant, whether he is neurotic, perverse, or psychotic, it's always a matter of the upsurge in him of a dimension of his being that he didn't know before, and that will completely disrupt his relations to others. With the psychotic, we've had this experience for 38 years with more than 600 psychotics. The psychotic comes to the center, which is a center for the psychoanalytic treatment of psychosis. It's not a psychological treatment. The psychotic comes, and in the first 30 months, this event will take place, which is that at a certain moment, he will realize that what everywhere else was considered to be his delusions, his hallucinations, all of a sudden for the people at the center and who are the people who accompany the analysts, what others called their hallucination is not considered a hallucination. What others called delusion is not considered a delusion. So he discovers a space that is no longer that mental space of the collective where what he could think and say was rejected, excluded as inappropriate to say. And this discovery will evidently change completely all of his relationships with others. He will also discover how everything he did and that others called his delusions or hallucinations prevented him from having access to a dimension of himself that all of a sudden there in the center can express itself, can pass to the act, whereas it could not be said. Also at the center, we have what we call uh, art workshops. Art workshops led by musicians, painters, writers. In other words, people dedicated to painting, to composing music, people who are dedicated to publishing texts come and work with the psychotic patients so that what they cannot say can pass through a work of music, a text in a poem. It has nothing to do with art therapy. It's an aesthetic practice where what cannot pass through language passes through painting, through music, through poetry, or other forms. Because psychotics have found in the psychoanalyst something that made them exit, leave behind the place where culture placed them, where civilization imprisoned them. But curiously, unfortunately for Lacan and the others, transference here does not translate into a form of erotomania. Out of some 600 patients, more than 600 patients, we've only had four cases of erotomania in 38 years, which is unfortunate for certain metapsychologies. Yes, I wonder why. Maybe it's another definition of transference that would lead, lead to believe that erotomania would be the consequence. Maybe, I, I don't know. In any event, we have patients that have become architects, others lawyers, high government officials, regular normal civil servants, painters, some have become university professors. We see all kinds of outcomes in the psychotics who've gone through psychoanalysis with us. Uh, that makes me think. Recently, they asked me to do an evening of philosophical discussion with them, which I did very gladly. Yeah, this seems like... Uh... More linked to the question Deleuze and Guattari posed, how to make oneself a body without organs, by reading Artaud precisely, as if it were a matter of making oneself a body without 
organs. Absolutely. That's another, That's another dimension, dimension of metapsychology for us. The body of a letter. A body that is constituted by everything that has been inscribed in us to transform the biological functions and to go beyond the limits of these functions. It's the body that enjoys, not the organism. Orgasm is only pleasure. In other words, the sign of the good functioning of the organism. The body is the seat of jouissance, an exit from oneself that we wouldn't want to lose for anything in the world. Mm -hmm. So since we speak of the disappearance of civilizations with regard to that which we would not want to lose for anything in the world, I thought about asking you a question about time. I was rereading this paper by Freud on the unconscious in preparation for a meeting, and I found a well-known phrase, the unconscious does not know time. So nonetheless, this sort of independence of the unconscious from the passage of time tends to be imagined as if the subject of the unconscious were stuck in the past, in childhood, or in Oedipus. Or maybe as if these things inscribed in us, to speak of the body of the letter, spoke to us only about a determination and not so much about a future to come or what is yet to be written, maybe. So my question is, can the experience of the unconscious be conceived in another way, where the stakes of timelessness would allow a relationship to the future that is freer, more creative, maybe, and even less tragic than, for instance, the fate of Oedipus or Antigone. Certainly no less tragic time. Hmm. First of all, the unconscious, the experience of the unconscious is outside space-time, time. That it, it doesn't even exist, time. Time is number. The human's mind created numbers to be able to create mathematics. This ability to think what does not exist is mathematics. And on the basis of mathematics, philosophy. This allowed human beings one day to create science. And, and by science, I mean physics. Time is number. Beyond number, there's nothing that can be referred to to which one can refer as existing with regard to time. The simplest example is the question of speed, the position of an object at a given moment. Since Einstein, physics has gone a long way in this domain. The, the human collective will constitute an experience that it will consider as time and which pertains to the movement of celestial bodies, but still takes place within number. The day, the night, and on this basis, the past, yesterday, tomorrow, they are constructions in language that are important from the perspective of civilization that wishes to validate, accredit, lend credibility to norms, prohibitions, rules, censorship. The exclusion from the social link of a certain number of things and the promotion of others. So there's this concept of time that to the spirit is only numbers. For the mental, there is a time which is a collective experience. And then there is the time that a civilization imposes. But for psychoanalysis, 
and we were speaking about jouissance before, it's an exit from time, an exit from space-time. What a man in jouissance lives through as time has nothing to do with what a woman lives as time in jouissance. It does not pertain to the order of number, does not pertain to the order of the succession of things that a, con that a culture constructs and that a civilization recognizes. What the Shintoist lives as time is not the same as what the Muslim lives in his self-consciousness. What the Hindu lives as time in his consciousness, his self-consciousness, is not what the Protestant American lives in his self-consciousness. So you have time that is a number, a pure number from the point of view of science. You have time that is a given imposed by the constructions of culture and civilization. Then you have the time that is a subjective experience of the being's self-consciousness. And this is perhaps the great discovery of transference, the outside of time of the being where the subject is inaccessible to the other, like the photon is inaccessible to the quantum physicist. So what is lived in this voyage that is the analytic experience is outside of time. The patient comes out of the session as the other comes out of the dream. It's as if the dream were given a consistency. The physical time of REM or the neurobiologist has nothing to do with the subjective time of telling the dream, narrating the dream. But unconscious desire, of course, is a whole other experience than the time which culture speaks about. Yes, your explanation uh, seems to sustain much more than the non-determined character of this subjective time in its own way. Just like quantum physics. And you said at the beginning, no less tragic. Perhaps it would be tragic in a different way than in Oedipus or Antigone. Uh, maybe worse. Maybe worse? Because what emerges from the outside of time undoes so many things in the space-time of the social link consequences for which responsibility must be assumed. It's not even possible to accuse another that these things that surge forth cannot be separated from their ethical and aesthetic dimensions. This is not obvious. The consequences are as much for others as for us. And we are responsible because it comes from this dimension in us that is outside of time. We have not left tragedy behind, but at least we have more and more access to the ethical and to the sublime. There are more important things than our own existence. A psychoanalysis must no longer serve the success of the ego and the social link. That's a bygone age. It could be a good moment to treat the question of psychoanalysis, of looking for a definition, your definition of psychoanalysis. I don't know if one can define this voyage that we undertake to discover in us everything that has been excluded from the human and to decide to promote it for the best, for the best of the human in us and around us, since we are responsible for it with this care or concern that it's still more important than our own existence because it's a matter of the human 
and that we we pass like everything else. Merci beaucoup. Merci à vous.